I was very happy with many of the winners. I was very happy to many of the winners. Um, I was very happy with many. <laughs> Shall I try? <laughs> no, it's John's turn to get a word in edgeways. He just has to think about which words he's going to get in. I was very I liked it. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to the very 47th episode of Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom which is coming to you on the 23rd of December 2021. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we didn't read any letters of comment out last episode and people may have noticed this but this time we have loads of letters of comment so we can read them all out verbatim. That's a good plan. I think that's a good plan. Everyone in favour? Well, it's verbatim. Oh, okay. Yeah, you do that and, and I'll I'll come back in half an hour. It's good. Farah said that Novacon didn't enforce masking and Farah said it was the worst Farah has seen so far. And Farah then followed up by saying it needs to be compulsory in the corridors, the dealer room and the programme room. And Fran Dowd commented saying that they were okay with Novacon's policy of masks pretty much everywhere except the bar area until Fran realised that by bar area, they didn't mean the bar, but any social space in the hotel where you could sit down with a drink. And I think I think Fran's point is uh, well made. I hadn't quite thought about it in those terms. That kind of follows from the discussion we were having last time. I also got a comment from my brother saying that it was his favourite episode of the podcast we've done so far. So I'm glad that some people enjoyed it. And Jonathan Badley also wrote to us and sent a long comment about masks and the worry of deciding whether or not to go to an event that you might be turned away from the door from if you didn't have the right paperwork. And I have to say, flying to Portugal felt a bit like that. We also had some locks from listeners Farah, Joe Lindsay Walton and Alan Stroud about the BSFA. Thank you all very much for coming on our Facebook group and having a good Good old discussion about that. If you are a BSFA member, you can download PDFs of all the BSFA's publications from their website. And we have discovered something about BSFA membership, which Alison will exclusively reveal. It turns out that you can get, even if you're in the UK, you can get a digital membership of the BSFA just by filling in the membership form, but putting not applicable in all the mandatory address boxes on it. And that way you'll get a digital membership because they won't be able to send you anything. I just recommend you don't try this with Wussfus. <laughs> and that's a joke that will make more sense later in the episode. We also heard from listener Dave who commented that uh, the sound on the last episode was a little bit iffy. I think I put it, why is Alison podcasting from the bottom of a well? Uh, we apologise for this. It's basically because now we are allowed to like leave our homes again. We have to get used to doing some recordings in what are not our optimal usual podcast spots. So we are working on it for future episodes. I need to correct Liz there, where when she said now that we're able to leave our homes, what she meant is during the brief interregnum when we were able to leave our homes. Do not think about the event. Chris Garcia wrote, wonderful episode, lots of chewiness. Which is good. We're glad that you chewed on our episode. We hope that all episodes will be equally nourishing. Chris says on the topic of COVID and cons that he um, 
he thinks there's a lot of danger with having in-person conventions and he says so john tell espania she's right uh i try and avoid telling espania she's right because it gives her leverage chris uh but she might hear this podcast despite my best efforts and he also notes that it's hard to do test at the door in the u.s because at home tests cost 15 bucks for two which seems too expensive i mean it would seem too expensive even if it was 50 cents for two uh, but 15 bucks for two is is daft Yes, free testing, it's a basic of public health, who knew? He also says that he's had, by his count, more than a dozen concussions since he was two. He almost certainly has CTE. What does CTE stand for, Liz? Oh, uh, I need to look it up. It's, but I think it's, um, it's what everyone in the NFL has, basically. It stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Fair enough. And he says they can only know for sure if he does by dissecting his brain so he's going to wait to get that done he thinks sorry to hear that chris it's basically my fear is i hit myself on the head until i can no longer think or do anything um but hopefully that won't happen hurrah he doesn't have a recorder for tapes anymore but he'll run octothorpe through his voice to text converter and mail john hurts a copy so thank you very much for that chris that'd be very helpful i'm I'm not sure john hurts is going to thank us for an auto transcribed version of octothorpe it's going to be very confused. <laughs> <laughs> Chris then says at the end, gotta say, it's an interesting time to be a convention fan. And that segues neatly into Wuss Fuss and Worldcon site selection news. At Smothcon, I think people still thought that Chengdu had not got that many votes in and it was all going to be fine. And what happened after that? was that the Chengdu bid, helped by the biggest science fiction magazine in China, ran a live stream for eight consecutive nights where they got every science fiction celebrity in China and then also some recordings from people around the world on their live stream and had thousands upon thousands of science fiction fans in China, mostly students, watching it and chatting all the way through and saying how marvellous Chengdu was and voting. And those people bought supporting memberships of the Worldcon and voting tokens and voted. And in total, there were a lot of votes and Chengdu won. And this is the bit where Liz can put in. But in the meantime... Yes, 106,000 views on their stream on the SFW magazine hosted one. When people think, well, that's a lot of votes, Emily Arrow said, and I thought this was very pertinent that when Helsinki was bidding, they got 200 Finns to join and vote. And that was about 20 times as effective as the Chengdu bid was when you compare relative populations of China and Finland. So I'm going to also have to probably explain a little bit about how site selection works if you have not voted in Worldcon site selection. Um, Essentially, so you can vote before the con and those votes were emailed to the site selection admin and you could pay through the, the Discon website, basically. So on the first evening before Worldcon, traditionally, the bids will send some tellers who will start looking at those votes in order, usually to declare whether the vote is a valid vote or not, separate the address from the actual vote, and then those votes can be counted later with all the votes that happen on site where this separation happens during the voting process. Um, And the first interesting thing that happened here was that Kevin Stanley, who was one of the Winnipeg bid representatives, posted a breakdown of the country of origin of all the voters 
in the pre-voting, which was an unusual step. It showed that there was a huge majority of Chinese votes, and then votes for about 17 other countries. And there was some basically kerfuffle around this because this was not normal practice. And so the, the numbers were actually taken down. Uh, because you could you could infer this in two ways, actually. I mean, you could infer that it would give Winnipeg a very strong kind of get out the vote rationale. But you could also interpret it that people would then go, actually, China has a massive lead. There's no point in me voting because I don't need a sporting membership in a Chinese World Cup. Um, but they got taken down. But I thought the interesting thing then was that they did not split the uh, address information from the votes at that time. So when all the stuff about Kevin emerged, um, at first people just kind of, this seems a bit off, especially people from from Europe. But when the full ramifications emerged, um, Kevin was released from his roles, both as um, one of the official tellers for Winnipeg, but also as the chair of the Wusfus business meeting for the convention, which does raise the question of why somebody who was working for one of the bids was the chair of the business meeting, though he wasn't planning to chair the site selection section of the business meeting. But still, there is an issue about how you separate these roles that I think Wusfus would do well to consider for future world cons. And then, anyway, there's a part two to this story. Yes, there is. There is a part two. So I, I should say, like, I have no reason to disbelieve that Kevin, who said he would recuse himself from any site selection business, would do that. But I'm not sure if there is a mechanism by which that can actually happen to the chair of the business meeting. And so it all relies very much on kind of goodwill and trust. And that may also have been a problem with what happened next at business meetings. So then at the Friday business meeting, a motion appeared. So I was sort of, I came into the business meeting, I was watching it virtually a bit late and I came in and they were debating a motion and um, I eventually saw the text of the motion on Twitter, um, which was essentially, business meeting believes that site selection votes should have membership number, name, signature and address. It really said or and then was amended to and. And the one, the version that went around on Twitter has the names of the Winnipeg bid chair and vice chair on it. Although I'm told that when it was actually introduced, it was introduced by the site selection administrator. And it was just a very strange moment because these are people who are, you know, intimately involved in site selection and in wanting their bid to win, introducing a resolution, wanting the business meeting to rule on how the vote should be counted, kind of in the middle of the actual voting process. But it was in the middle of the actual voting process, but at a point when it massively favoured those who could still vote in person, who were mostly going to be in favour of the Winnipeg bid. The arguments for and against at the business meeting, no one seemed to have a good argument for why it had been introduced. No one ever stepped up and said clearly, this is why we need the business meeting to take a ruling on this. And in fact, I'm not sure why the business meeting should be taking a ruling on it anyway. And eventually it's sort of, you know, there were the, the debate happened. At one point, the chair of the business meeting got the vice chair of the business meeting to take over so that he could speak in favour of, of the motion, which also seemed extremely strange. And then it was voted through. Uh, but it's a non-binding resolution, which did not bind the site selection administrator to follow it at all. So it was just a very kind of strange half an hour. And I still don't really know what they hope to accomplish with it. I believe I have an explanation from that for having had several conversations with Smoffs who I like and generally respect quite a lot, but think might have been somewhat misguided or their friends might have been somewhat misguided in this case and what it was was that quite a lot of people 
having realised that there were all these Chinese bids that had only email addresses and not street addresses, which we now discover is completely 100% the norm in China, thought it was important for this to be drawn to the attention of the business meeting. And then they did it in this way that was not necessarily very clever. Um, But the head of site selection wanted to get a sense of the view of the business meeting before making a final call on that. And I think eventually he also got or they also got a view on the the feeling of the internet. And uh, that's not... (laughs) (laughs) When I say the feeling of the internet, I don't mean... Twitter went bananas, but Twitter did go bananas. But also, a lot of the people who would have been in that room but can't because, let might, might I remind you, WUSFA still has no arrangement for remote participation, even though it's obvious that they need one. Even the people who would dearly have loved to be in that room but were prevented from, say, not having their visa accepted or having or, or being worried about plague couldn't participate in this directly but so those were a lot of the people who were pitching in there was an extremely good um post which i'm afraid is friends locked by colin harris for example where he he went through a lot of his feelings about this resolution and and there was a lot of informed comment there and in a number of other places around the internet so it wasn't just everyone everyone lost their collective um, what do we say when we, people are losing collective things and we're a family-friendly podcast? Everyone got a little bit cross. A number of people got a little bit cross on the internet. <laughs> but it was also a lot of very considered reaction from people who who thought this was really way out of order. And then eventually the site selection head meant, yeah, no, I've decided that these, these votes are valid. And it all came out all right in the end, provided that all right in the end includes having a Chinese Worldcon. But I mean, I mean, I voted for Winnipeg. I campaigned for Winnipeg. I didn't want there to be a Chinese Worldcon by preference, but, I, you know, they, they did win. And I feel like it's OK. They've got the Worldcon. We just need to make it the best Worldcon it can be now. Yeah. So I think I think in general, one of the things that got said was the reason that this resolution was brought was not necessarily because the site selection administrator wanted to be bound by the business meeting but because they wanted a steer uh, from the community i think the other thing that is relatively apparent is if you read the relevant part of the was constitution it is not in fact designed to exclude votes that do not have all of the contact information on them and i gen i generally think if that clause in the constitution is going to be interpreted thusly we probably need to take postal addresses off or make it clear that they are an exception because i don't necessarily see the benefit of everyone giving their postal address to a a world con because i don't necessarily want the world con to be able to mail me i think in the end it became apparent that the the chinese votes for chengdu were real votes from actual science fiction fans and should probably have been counted it did come out at the site selection meeting that if they had followed the resolution passed by the business meeting winnipeg would have won because the majority of the votes from china had not got complete address information on um, but it turns out that may well be a cultural thing because apparently telefraud is a big problem in china and one of the ways to reduce your risk of that is not to give your address out to people via pdf emails on the internet yeah i have a couple more points here the actual point that they were relying on in the constitution says site selection ballots shall include name signature address and membership number spaces to be filled in by the voter 
I don't know about the people in the Worcester's business meeting, but I live in 2021 and I don't think many people on the planet think that, that would automatically assume that the word address means mailing address. I, I mean, I think it's a bit like saying phone means a device that is attached to the wall and makes telephone calls. I'm also concerned that although the instructions for filling in the ballot were in Chinese, the ballot was in English, and and the Chinese instructions are very unlikely to have specified mailing address, I think, I, I suspect. And of course, the Worcester's constitution is not in Chinese. And this feels to me to be, it would have been deeply unfair to have concluded that what was required there was a full mailing address, which seems, again, makes me quite surprised that the business meeting did. And again, I think it's, it's, it just speaks about how monocultural the business meeting is, especially this year. This year in particular, when a lot of people from around the world who normally have been in that room couldn't be there, um, you do have a group of people who are mostly white, mostly elderly, mostly American. And I think that was what caused that outcome. And props to Ben Yallow, the guest of honour at Discon 3, who spoke loudly and determinedly against the motion. Go, Ben. Yes. I will also... So just one other thing. I've got an anecdote, uh, which is I asked my friend... I said, "What's your? How do I send you mail these days?" And he said, um, "Here's my Gmail address." And I was like, "I did. I meant post. I didn't mean email." But he read the word "mail" and interpreted it to mean email. And he is like older than me, so I think that is a shift that is happening. And the fact it doesn't specify address, but also I will note there's nothing in the Wusfus Constitution that says here is what makes a ballot valid. There's nothing at all that says this is the criteria and so if the ballot says this is what makes the ballot valid as far as i can see the worcester constitution doesn't say what the convention has to take as that so making arguments based on the constitution just seems silly and if the ballot says here is what makes the ballot valid then you go with that you don't i just don't see there's a leg to stand on here i think the only thing you achieve by lodging this is that it looks like you're trying to fiddle the vote and i think that you know that's bad so I, I was glad that it did not work. Yeah, so so my thought on all of this is, you know, it, it sounds like there may have been some good valid intentions behind it. In the end, it has worked out because those votes were not uh, eliminated, which I think is the correct move. And so Chengdu won by having more votes. But it just strikes me as, yeah, again, like we have burned another massive amount of goodwill. We have looked like Wisfus kind of have to, you know... Uh, uh, finger on the scale and are trying to, to swing ballots. Um, I think we really need to be aware of kind of how this looks to the outside world looking. It's not just important to kind of discuss it with those 80 people in the business meeting because there might not be people participating virtually, but there sure are people watching virtually. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's just important that you, when you're going to bring these motions, which look very much like you are trying to say, will the business meeting approve of me throwing out like all these votes and therefore Winnipeg ends up winning. I think you just have to be very aware of how this looks for people viewing virtually who may also not be able to turn to their neighbour and say, what is going on in this business meeting? Because I don't quite understand the procedure, which is what I have done a lot in the very few in-person business meetings I've been to. You know, things like it was a resolution, but it was not at all kind of clear what the difference is to the average viewer, maybe between a resolution and a constitutional amendment, things like that. Yes, and I think 
all of the British people heard the words non-binding resolution and had had a kind of sudden shudder to their souls. I did want to make one more point about this, which is this is how indirect racism works. You do things that you do not think are biased, but nevertheless, you introduce a massive amount of bias. Um, in this case, the Hugo business meeting, the business meeting did not know the balance of votes. Um, so they did things in a way that they did not believe was biased, but it was. In general, I am quite happy that the bid that attracted the most votes was the bid that was the seated Worldcon. I think that is good, and I think that is how it should work. I am a little bit concerned about some aspects of China hosting a Worldcon. <laughs> and I think I try to thread this needle because there was a point at which at the third Thursday where I was like, well, I was very pro Winnipeg, and then everyone on my side turned out to be a little bit of a giant racist and now i'm a bit like oh no am i a baddie but i think in general it should not be the case that people interpret our gladness that the wusfus procedures worked in a sort of democratic and fair way as gladness that um the world comes going to china uh and i'm not going to talk about it too much because i think probably at this point in a western country everyone's very familiar with the reasons we're a little bit nervous about you know the Chinese government and etc um, but I am going to link to Jeanette Ng's Twitter thread um, Jeanette used to live in Hong Kong and therefore has a quite um, personal perspective on this as a British SF fan who used to live in a territory which is controlled by China uh, and so um, I will link to that in the show notes yeah I, I went I have also moved on this issue because I went from being a, a firm Winnipeg supporter who was really worried about China getting the world come to being somebody who's met and chatted to quite a lot of Chinese fans and is now quite excited about the idea of all of those incredibly excitable students um, who are amazed by science fiction and thrilled by it, getting a world con of, of their own to go to. And I think that will be great. And I understand that that may mean that some of the people who regularly go to Worldcon can't go. And that's a shame for them. But you don't get to go to Worldcon every year and they never get to go to Worldcon. So, you know. Yeah. Liz, do you have anything on, you know, the Chinese state? <laughs> 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 no, fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, I think I've been, you know, interacting a little bit with the the, the Chengdu bid um, on Discord. What I think is actually more obvious to me now and that I didn't realise is that it was phenomenally hard for them to vote in site selection um, because Discord had to stop accepting their main payment method. They don't all have credit cards that can be used internationally. You know, the ballot is not translated um so you've got to basically try and fill in an english language pdf and sign it and send it back and that might be the reason as well why there are apparently 917 voting tokens that were bought but no votes associated with them which is an unusually high number i mean that is a lot of money that was spent on voting tokens with no vote uh, so it'd be interesting to know kind of why those voting tokens were bought and then never voted is it that they were bought and people thought they'd sent their vote in but actually they hadn't managed to vote at all or they managed to double buy tokens it's it's kind of interesting that obviously something was going on there that meant a thousand people tried to buy tokens and vote and didn't manage to vote i mean i think it is quite likely that other people were buying tokens in the end because of this thing about the students not having any way to buy directly um I, I mean, I, I'm assuming that Chengdu will sort it out. I think so. My, my final thoughts on site selection are that 
every kind of previous overseas world comp bid has had to do a lot of outreach in order to get people to vote for it. And what is clear from Chengdu is that they just have a sufficiently large group of fans out there that actually they don't really need to do any outreach at all. They can just win a Chinese world con entirely with votes from Chinese fans, which is a different situation than we've been in before. At the site selection business meeting, when Chengdu won, they announced their guests of honour, who were Lu Zexin, Sergei Lukyanenko, and Robert J. Sawyer. This has attracted some comment because obviously those are all male guests of honour, and some people have wondered why there may not be a female guest of honour. And I think it is true that they could stand to invite a female guest of honour later down the road yeah i mean i expect they'll have more guests and i'm sure there'll be women on that list it was either very clever of them to have a canadian guest of honor or as a kind of olive branch to winnipeg or it's just luck but i think it's quite a good move there have also been some criticisms of the choice of Sergei Lukyanenko as the guest of honor it's not anything i was aware of personally But there have been some criticism of his opinions on Russian sanctions in Georgia and the Ukraine. And the only things I've seen are now quite historic. So they're kind of from 2008, but I haven't seen anything further on whether these are kind of, you know, opinions he still holds. So this came up instantly after he was selected as the guest of honour raised by fans from the area. It's a concern across a broader area than just Ukraine. Um, Our friend friend of the show, Marcine, was pretty horrified by that announcement. They've got a very cute Panda Bid logo and Panda Convention logo. And I do look forward to seeing all the different kind of varieties of their Panda logo we get over the next couple of years. I'm looking forward to their branding. I believe they are currently having discussions about what the name of the convention should be. I'm kind of like, maybe they should have had those discussions before winning the bid. The Hugo Awards were announced. We don't have the full statistical breakdown yet, so we can't go proper nerdy. Uh, Expect that next week, as we are all proper nerds. Um, But we did get the actual list of who won, and Liz went to the ceremony. So, Liz, do you want to talk about that? Yes, I could watch the ceremony. Um, It was actually delayed by an hour for either some smoke or a fire or something. They said there was no fire. And then they said there was, however, an electrical fault and quite a lot of smoke. And you know what they say about smoke. So, but they only. So the Hugo started 75 minutes late, but it was fine. Yes, I mean, that that seems reasonable if you had an electrical fault. And I'm quite grateful because I woke up what would have been about 40 minutes into the Hugos. um, And it turns out that it was uh, like half an hour before they started, which was perfect. Yes, I watched the Hugo ceremony, which was emceed by Sheree Renee Thomas and uh, Andrea Hairston, as Malka Alder had to uh, unfortunately withdraw. And it was pretty good. I mean, yeah, it was it was just a very competently done Hugo ceremony basically it ran roughly to time it had some jokes it had some uh, you know excellent moments from Thomas and Hairston who they referred to e.g. the 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 renaming of the astounding award and how that reflects like our, our future there were some good speeches from some of the winners um I really like seeing the firecon team sorry the fire magazine team on stage 
Maria Devana Headley did a great speech uh, for Beowulf, including saying how she was wearing a necklace that she could not have worn in person because it would get tangled up, so she had to do it remotely. They very they segued neatly between live acceptances, pre-recorded acceptances, and live acceptances over Zoom. I think they were live acceptances over Zoom, and that worked really well and very smoothly. You know, we had some music. They had a choir singing during the In Memoriam. It basically was all, it was all just kind of very smooth and very nice. And then I enjoyed watching it. The only slight hitch was they accidentally didn't play the recorded acceptance speech from Best Video Game uh, until later. But they just came back and slotted it in. You know, no fuss. Yeah. So I enjoyed watching it. I'm pretty happy with all the winners. It was a, a pretty good Hugo ceremony. And it was kind of what was needed because last year's Hugo ceremony, you know, we were all sitting there. Those of us watching it live going, what's going on here? Is this really what I think it is? And, you know, those of us watching it live this time were pretty much like, yeah, this is pretty good. With exception of, you know, some eyebrow, re- eyebrow raising when they said it was um, sponsored by uh, Raytheon Corporation. But apart from that, I think everything was, was pretty good. I was very happy with many of the winners. I was particularly happy to see Fire win Best semi-prosine i think that's very richly deserved and i also think it is good when you have different things winning in a category and i think unbroken streaks of many years are perhaps a bad sign so particularly happy uh to see that uh, i was also uh generally very pleased with the other winners and yeah i in general was very happy to read read the results and congratulations to cood street for winning best fancast eight-time finalist and first-time winners and richly deserved and i do think that their work in 2020 was some of the best work they've done uh so i think uh richly deserved at the moment as well they were my top pick and i was very pleased to see them win and congratulations to allison for her victory because hades won oh yeah (laughs) and she must be over the moon (laughs) i tweeted out to greg this morning and said Oh, I could not say in all those emails about the Hugo Voter Packet, oh, and incidentally, I've played your game for 300 hours. (laughs) But I think it's okay to fess up now. So I was very pleased to see Hades win. I would have been pleased. I mean, I was generally pleased. Obviously, not everything I voted for won, but there were several categories where I was extremely pleased. I was very pleased to see Beowulf win, um, because whether or not you think it was eligible, it was at least a thing that is a a work. You want to say you want to say something about how it's nice to see a long substantial work win because we've had a run of blog posts and shots of things. Yeah, no, I I kind of what well, I am concerned by the trend for things that are kind of about conventions winning in best related work. And so it's quite nice to see something that is clearly a best related work winning it. And also Beowulf, that translation of Beowulf is unbelievably fantastic. And if you have not read it, if you have any interest at all in the history of fantasy, it it is well worth your time. I was also pleased to see the old god win for the simple reason that it was the first time that the full that the full length best dramatic presentation long form finalist has been included in a Hugo Voter packet. And so I, I don't know whether it was correlated in any way, but it, I was glad to see it win for that reason. So if you're out there and you make movies, put them in the Voter packet, it works. We have clear evidence. I hadn't noticed that because I just assumed I'd go and watch it on Netflix. Ah, interesting. 
I will immediately counter that with the news that the only thing in the packet from Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form did not win. So, you know. (laughs) Sorry. John, get out here with your logic. I will also say, um, apparently Eurovision Song Contest did better than Tenet. And I think Tenet has many flaws, but I am not sure I think it deserved to come behind Eurovision. Okay, can I give you a theory on this, which is that a lot of Hugo voters are quite old and Tenet is impossible to understand in the cinema and was not available on streaming during the voting period. Yeah, I mean, you probably, probably both of those are very big contributing factors. You have to have subtitles. It's not comprehensible to old people without subtitles. I, mean, I think it's also an effect of the, you know, the way voting works to determine second, third, fourth, fifth place is that, you know, often the thing which has, you know, a very big number of um, first place votes and then becomes one of the last two in the runoff then doesn't end up in second place because of redistribution. So, you know, Tenet could be, I'll just actually go and find the numbers because I've got them right in front of me. I mean, in Tenet's case, actually, it was like at the bottom of the pile from the start. So it never looked like it had even a chance. There are way more people who put uh, the Eurovision Song Contest actually in, in as first preference than, than Tenet. So it was never in with a chance. I think it is noticeable that the, the total participation in the Hugos this year was 2,362 ballots. And there is a clause in the Wusfus Constitution, which says you have to get at least 25% of the total ballots to vote in a category for that category to be awarded. And I think it is worth pointing out that some categories are actually running quite close to that number, that bottom limit of ballots, in particular, some of the fan categories. And I guess particularly relevant to Octothorpe is that there were 643, 632 votes in fan cast this year, and 25% of that total ballot is 590. So if 42 fewer people had voted in Best Fancast, it would not have been awarded. So I think this does speak to some need to try and raise the profile of the fan awards a little bit, because I think, you know, they're good awards. I think that the investment of time you need to look at the nominees and decide which one to vote for is is not huge, especially compared to something like Best Series, for instance. And maybe we can try and raise a little bit more interest in that and get a little bit more votes going in those categories, just because I think uh, Fancast especially was starting to come close to the lower limit. And that segues tidily into the other thing I want to say, which is that I was absolutely thrilled that Sarah Felix won Best Fan Artist for many reasons. She's done fantastic work on many fanzines this year across a whole spectrum of different sorts of fanzine. And she's the bid artist for the Glasgow in 2024 bid. But more than anything else, she has done the artwork for my for the next issue of my tiny fanzine, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. And um, you can't see the bit she's done yet because it hasn't come out yet. But it, when it does come out, it's an exact evocation of why she is the right person to be winning the best fan artist, Hugo. And I was absolutely thrilled. John, do you have more to say on the Hugos? I don't think I do. I do. Sorry. Someone gave me a spreadsheet full of statistics. Obviously, I have things to say. Um, I was just also going to say, I was also going to say that, you know, best video game was, you know, Discon's choice to award this year as an experiment. And I think it had, you know, a very credible list of, of finalists, as we've discussed before. But it also had, um, you know, it had 
40% of ballots that were cast filled in best video game. So this is not something that has been chosen by a, a tiny number of voters. There was also a, a reasonable voting contingent in this category. So it all bodes quite well for future conventions or future business meetings, which wish to introduce a best video game Hugo. The best video game Hugo is currently in the Hugo Awards Study Committee, which was described to me this weekend as where Hugo Awards go to die. Didn't we send best audiobook off to the Hugo Study Committee? Oh, yes. So it might be a few years. Pix, do you want to start? Me or who? You. Or whom? My pick for this episode is The Psychopath Club by Sandra Bond, which follows the adventures of Daryl Martok, who is a kid living in a small American town and very much not enjoying himself. Um, the tagline for the book is, he's a good kid, he just wants to kill you. And I think the touchstone people might be familiar with that will get them uh, into the right frame of mind for this book is probably The Wasp Factory by Ian Banks. Um, it reminded me very powerfully of that, but I, I think I probably enjoyed it a bit more than The Wasp Factory. Uh, and it's definitely more genre than The Wasp Factory. I really enjoyed it. It didn't do any of the things that I expected it to do uh, at any point and i i was very unsure where it was going at most of the points that i was reading which i i really thoroughly enjoyed and yeah i i would recommend everyone go and read it it is uh available on kindle for not much money uh or for um about 12 pounds in paperback uh if you don't have a kindle but you want an ebook version uh you can convert the kindle version uh in an app called caliber and just ping me a message and i can walk you through how to do that but yeah, I think it is fantastic and everyone should read it. So maybe Sandra is a great new voice in science fiction and everyone should read her work. So my choice is a book. I think we're all doing books this time. A book I recently read, which is The Witness for the Dead by Catherine Addison. It is a sequel of sorts to The Goblin Emperor, although I think it would it would stand alone reasonably well, although you're going to be confused about some of the world building. Um and it, it follows one of the characters who's introduced in the Goblin Emperor, Marcella Hart, who is uh, a witness for the dead. Essentially, he's a, a religious man whose kind of calling is to be a witness for the dead in that he can kind of commune with the dead. And he called upon a lot to, for things like um, investigating possible murders or suicides to clear up issues with wills to this kind of thing anyway it, it kind of follows him um in the town he has now moved to um where he's investigating you know several different um several different cases sort of there's some murders there's some some wills and also he's dealing with kind of his status and how he fits into the power structures and i i very much liked it because i like the goblin emperor and this gives us a kind of totally different view of that world because that the goblin emperor follows the new emperor as you'd expect and this one is much more kind of on the ground it is someone who is you know living essentially sort of lower middle class life in a working town and a lot of his investigations kind of do follow like the class structures you know places he can go essentially because maybe he crosses class boundaries as this member of the priesthood um he's investigating the death of an, an opera singer who 
uh, had kind of, you know, upper class patrons and lovers and, and what was going on there. Um, and the character himself is, is, is pretty great and fun to spend time with. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. It finishes a little bit kind of precipitously, but I think actually there is another book coming in the same series also about Mur Salahar. So I will be reading that one. Yeah, and my pick this time is Sibilant Fricative by Adam Roberts, which is a collection of um, his book reviews from New Compress. And what do I like about it? Well, I like that he is awesomely erudite and uses um, examples from literally everywhere to bring to bear in quite a clever critical way on all of these different things that he is reviewing and yet nevertheless he's reviewing things from a great many different genre in a great many different genres and styles and um and kind of appreciates them for what they are so he's quite good at actually getting into things and going this is this is good despite the fact that this is a piece of popular culture or this is bad despite the fact that everyone thinks it's excellent and it's very thought-provoking and interesting and also extremely funny roberts is quite a funny writer and this is a good example of it um he's more funny i think when writing criticism and commentary and tweets than he is when he is writing novels so i liked it a lot and i would recommend it and it is from new compress yes i think i think i read most of those kind of when they were on his blog yes it, it is a collection of articles from a blog but i did not read them all when they were on the blog and they are not on the blog now because he's put them in a book that's how it works exactly cunning Capitalism. <laughs> Authors eating, John. Authors eating. I, unlike some people I know, I'm broadly in favour of authors eating. Pay for art. Art is good. I mean, I'm not sure he's making a million dollars off his small press book of criticism here. More people should buy the book. <laughs> and, and and the ebook is only technically available on Amazon. So I wrote to because we have a kind of anti Amazon ebook thing going on now. I wrote to Ian Waits and said, "It's only on Amazon." And he said, "Oh God, send me three pound ninety nine." And that's what we've done. So I have an ebook. The Psychopath Club is also only on Amazon, but I bought it and then converted it into a different format using Calibre, and that meant I could read it on my preferred platform. And then we're going to do picks for SF Christmas songs, listeners. I'm not actually... Do we have to pick an SF Christmas song? I thought it was just Christmas song. No, you just have to pick a Christmas song. Because yours isn't a SF Christmas song, is it? It's a song with a great story behind it. I just read out what was in the bullet points, which says, picks for SF Christmas song. But all, all Christmas songs are SF and all because they presuppose the existence of either God or Santa. Oh, no, goodness. You have such a very limited range of Christmas songs in your life. In the show notes, I will put a link to a playlist of 100 Christmas songs, neither of which, none of which presuppose the existence of God or Santa. Well, that is they're not SF nor Alison and they don't count. I mean, we could start with Deck the Halls with Boughs of Holly, which is a completely pagan song with no mention of Christmas. I mean, there's only about three words in Deck the Halls and they're all fa-la-la-la. <laughs> See, this is what John was complaining about. And now we've done it to you. Um, no, it, it, there are lots of words, including Don We Now Our Gay Apparel, and I am going to put a link to the T-shirt in the show notes to make up for that. So my pick for SF Christmas Song, which is an actual science fictional Christmas song, no doubt, absolutely right nailed it, is Car on Beta Prime 
by Jonathan Coulton, which is a very, very good song. And we're going to link to the YouTube because that also includes a very good video. So there you go. Nice. My pick for best Christmas song is... I'm going to pick two because I'm some sort of a bellend. Uh, No. One of them is California Christmas Time, uh, which is from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And I like that a lot, mainly because my wife lived in California for like 20 years. And like I have lots of friends there. So it it makes me smile every time I hear it because I think about California and all of the good times I've had in California. uh, And I like that a great deal. And it's also very funny. Um, The second one I like is uh, Oh Santa by Mr. B, which has not safe for work lyrics. um, And I can't play it in front of my parents, uh, but which I love regardless and um i've been a huge fan of mr b ever since i saw him play a small coffee shop in southampton uh and so i very much like his christmas ditty doesn't everyone have a christmas playlist and then a second christmas playlist which is a subset of the first christmas playlist that you can play in front of grandma no but that's mostly because i don't really have often have family over to visit during christmas because we go somewhere else so i rely on the fact that somewhere else will have a family friendly playlist I think my playlist is family friendly. It's just it's also full of extremely obscure Christmas carols. So therefore, it's not really family friendly. Yeah, so so my my pick is a fairly obscure Christmas carol. It does presuppose the existence of God, John. So therefore, it is S.F.N.L. Hey. Anyway, it is the carol Bethlehem Down, which I love because it is a very beautiful carol with gorgeous four-part harmony. Um, you know, it, it changes the harmonies in the third verse uh, to emphasise kind of what will be coming at Easter for the baby Jesus. And it's this kind of lovely, sad carol, but I actually love it even more because of the story behind it, which is its composer, Peter Warlock, and the lyricist, Bruce Blunt. They wrote it and submitted the, the carol to the Daily Telegraph's annual Christmas carol contest back in 1927. And they did this because basically they were short of money. And when they won the carol contest, uh, they took the money and had essentially a big uh piss up on christmas eve so i love that kind of something so beautiful uh, came out of essentially wanting to go and have uh, a massive bender on christmas eve nice i like massive benders there's a form of words something like a majestic carouse or something uh, there is like a, they called it i believe an immortal carouse uh is what warlock said about it i, I I should say that I got, you know, I've heard this story a few times and it is referenced in uh, the online magazine of a, a church is where Wikipedia gets reference from, but it, it could be total bollocks. But it's a good story. They probably did win the carol contest. I would like to address one further issue, which is, John, hmm. can you let us know your future plans for the protection of marks? Oh, yes. Yes. Now, this is very good. So I have rotated off the Mark Protection Committee. Uh, For those who don't know, the Mark Protection Committee is a group of people who are on a committee who look after world contrade marks. But it is much more fun to go up to Mark Plummer at every EasterCon and ask whether he is protected uh, because, you know, you've got to find your joy where you can. And Mark sent me an email or two over the weekend uh, discussing Wusfus site selection business. And at the end of his last email, he wrote, P.S. As I am now unprotected, I am wearing armour. 
so I am glad to report that Mark Plummer will still be safe and he is taking matters into his own hands. But this clearly shows a tragic lack of trust in Wusfus's ability to protect Marks in my absence. So Wusfus, how do you answer these accusations that you will no longer adequately protect Mark Plummer? Uh, we are not going to give you a right of reply, uh, but let us know in a lock. And Nicholas White, who I'm sure would have been extremely capable of protecting Mark Plummer and other Marks, applied, was a candidate in this election, but they had nine candidates for six places on the committee and he was not one of those elected. So Nicholas White will not be protecting Marks in the future. But I'm sure the people who have been elected will thoroughly protect Mark Plummer and other Marks going forward. Well, they'd better, Alison. They'd better. Or they'll have us to answer to. And that was the Octothorpe podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. If I, if I thought it was going in the podcast, I would have been polite. No, no, I agree. We shouldn't have that in there. The theme music for this episode was It's Christmas Time by Frank Schurter, used under a simplified filmmusic.io standard license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.